So I mentioned to you last week that I don't watch a whole lot of television, but there are some exceptions, especially when it comes to shows about history. And one show that I particularly like is a show called Connections. Maybe you guys have seen it. It was on PBS, oh, I don't know, I think in the late 70s, but reruns are still on. Anyway, in this 10-episode series, this Englishman named James Burke, who's a science historian and an author and a TV producer, follows a series of events through history and shows how one incident or one innovation often leads to some seemingly totally unrelated outcome in the future. Have you guys ever seen shows like that? You guys are more interested in candy. <laughs> yeah. Let's, well, we've got plenty of time. We're not going anywhere. We'll wait. I thought the kids would be quicker than this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah un- unskilled labor. So anyway, but just to pause here for a second, it is pretty exciting that it's our 40th anniversary, isn't it? I mean, and just some of the amazing things that this church has accomplished in 40 years. Um, and I know Ed and I have talked about this a lot with Bob, but like Kathy, I mean, you remember, you know, starting out in the little house church, right? And how many, how many folks did you have in the little house church when it started? Members. How many people? So what, like half a dozen or... Yeah. So it was on 19th Street, right? So for those of you that don't know, that the church was originally founded as a house church on 19th Street uh, and then outgrew there, purchased this piece of property, which was an orange grove, right, guys? They cleared it out and, uh, and laid the cornerstone, and it's just grown and grown ever since. Uh, you guys paid off the mortgage in, what, 10, 10 years or sooner than that? Paid off the mortgage. So we have a lot to be grateful for for the folks that founded this church. And we're going to kind of spend this year talking, not, not only looking backwards at the things that those folks have done, but seeing what we can do to be good stewards of the next 40 years if the Lord doesn't come back between now and then, because we want to leave this church in as good a shape, if not better, for the next generation if the Lord doesn't come back beforehand, right? I think everybody's got their candy now. But anyway, this TV show that I was telling you about is about these connections throughout history. And one of the things they followed was like, for instance, how uh, 17th century Dutch cargo ship design through the course of history eventually led to the development of plastic in the 20th century and just the course of events. Or there was another show about how an excess crop of coffee beans in Brazil led to the development of nylon stockings. So it's just tracing all these kind of disparate events through history and seeing how they line up. And it's really fascinating when you see how they all fit together over the course of history. And the man's premise for the show is he contends that you can't consider the development of any one particular piece of modern world history in isolation because it's really the result of a whole web of interconnected events. And each one of them uh, with either a person or a group, and they're all kind of acting for their own reasons and their own motivations, but it's that interplay of the results of all those little isolated events that really drives history. And I share that with you because... During this new year, during this 2017, I want us to look at and to talk about the connections that run all throughout the scriptures. Our Bible, a work that is a book composed of 66 smaller books written by about 40 different authors, most of which 
would have never met each other over about 1,500 years, but that has one consistent storyline running all the way through it, and that has one ultimate author, and that is God. And the storyline that runs through all of those books with all of those different stories in them is the redemption of God's people through the blood of Jesus Christ. So during this year, as we travel through the lectionary and the celebrations of the Christian year, I also want us to focus on seeing Jesus Christ in every book of the Bible, in all of Scripture, not just in the New Testament. I want us to be grounded in the fact that he is the great object of all of Scripture, that he's the scarlet thread that's woven through all of the verses, all of the narratives, making them more than just a collection of stories, but the greatest story of how God worked throughout history to save a people for himself. And aren't we grateful for that? So now this idea of Jesus as a scarlet thread is not new. It's not something that I came up with, of course. It's borrowed from a man named W.A. Criswell, who was a longtime pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas. And on New Year's Eve in 1961, Dr. Criswell preached for five hours, a five-hour message tracing the scarlet thread of Jesus Christ through every book of the Bible. Now, I'm not going to keep you here that long, I promise. (laughs) But that did remind me of a story of after a really exceptionally long sermon, how a a pastor told that his congregation was filing out in the receiving line and nobody was saying a word to him until the very last guy comes out of the church and walks up to the pastor, shakes his hand and said, you know, pastor, that sermon reminded me of the peace and the love of God. And the pastor was just ecstatic. He said, no one's ever said anything like that about one of my sermons before. You know, tell me, what, what about it reminded you of the peace and the love of God? And the man said, well, it reminded me of the peace of God because it passed all human understanding. And your sermon reminded me of the love of God because it endured forever. So I promise not to keep you forever, and hopefully you'll understand what we're talking about. But I'm going to give you the opening quotation from Dr. Criswell's message. He said, Do you know that a scarlet thread winds its way throughout the entire Bible? He said, skeptics and scoffers may fire their arrows at the validity and historicity of Scripture, but believers throughout the centuries have seen this line of crimson woven through every book of God's holy word. It is the story of the redemption of mankind at the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. So if that's true, then it means that there isn't any book of Scripture that we should skip over, right? And even though we're not Jewish, and I'm not suggesting that we become more Jewish, so don't, don't send me any letters or send Mary into the office, but the Old Testament scriptures should be just as important to us as any book of the New Testament, right? I mean, think about it for a minute. Reading the New Testament without looking at the Old Testament would be like trying to understand the Declaration of Independence and not wanting to know anything about King George III of England, right? Or it'd be maybe like trying to understand the space station, but not being interested in the pioneering work of men like John Glenn. Or maybe like trying to read a trilogy of books, but only picking up the very last one. You get the idea? In fact, one commentator said it can be argued that reading the New Testament without a solid understanding of the Old Testament is reading out of context. Because invariably, ideas alien to the true meaning of the Scripture is imported, and erroneous conclusions will be formed. And that makes sense to me. Because, you know, today a lot of churches and a lot of individuals virtually ignore the Old Testament. And I think that that's a mistake. I really think that's a mistake. They think it's irrelevant for today. But I want to show you why it's important. 
First of all, Jesus and all of his disciples were Torah-observant Jews. The scriptures that they studied and, and loved and quoted were all from the Old Testament, from our Old Testament. In fact, Jesus quoted directly from the book of Deuteronomy on many occasions, like during his temptation in the wilderness. When someone asked him one day what was the greatest commandment of the Lord, he quoted from Deuteronomy 6.5 and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. And then he added to that by reaching even further back into the book of Leviticus and saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he said these two scriptures were the essence of God's law, a law that he himself said he didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. And he went even further than that by saying definitively that the Jewish scriptures all testify about him. You know, just after the resurrection, two of the disciples were on their way to the town of Emmaus discussing the crucifixion of Jesus that had taken place three days earlier. And and then the Lord himself appeared alongside them right there on the road and taught them directly from the Old Testament. This is what it's recorded in Luke 24. He tells us, Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all of the prophets, explaining from all of Scripture the things concerning himself. So as his followers, we should understand what that means and why it matters and be able to explain to someone else how Jesus is revealed in the Old Testament. And to do that, I'd like us to take a look in this new year through our Christian lectionary, and I also want us to take a look at the weekly Jewish Torah readings. We're going to kind of line them up together to help all of us have a fuller picture of the Son of God, who is the Jewish Messiah and the Christ of the Gentiles. And that's where we get into our launching point from today's reading in the lectionary, which starts out in Isaiah chapter 63. And he writes, I will recount the gracious deeds of the Lord, the praiseworthy acts of the Lord, because of all that the Lord has done for us, and the great favor to the house of Israel that he has shown them, according to his mercy, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior in all their distress. It was no messenger or angel, but his presence that saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. So now keep, keep that reading in your mind. And we're going to look at the Torah reading appointed for this week, which starts right in the middle of the Old Testament story of Joseph. Remember that story, right? And as we walk through it here in a minute, I want you to keep your eyes out for how these scriptures line up between our Jesus in the Old Testament. And more importantly, how they point to the Lord in every facet of the story. Now, I'm sure you remember it, but just by way of of background, the story of Joseph is the story about the son of a family, the favorite son, that was cruelly sold into slavery by his jealous brothers for 20 pieces of silver. But that God was with him. He was with him and he quickly became the supervisor of his new master's household. Now, that would have been a happy ending to the story, right? But that's not what happened. Because when he resisted temptation, the advances of his master's wife, he was falsely accused and thrown in prison, only to end up becoming the warden of the whole jail. And he met two important prisoners, two very important prisoners, the Pharaoh's baker and his wine steward. Both of those men had troubling dreams, and Joseph was able to interpret them by the Spirit of God. One dream concerning a harsh punishment for the baker 
and the other dream a dream of salvation and restoration for the wine steward. And now if you remember the story, when that wine steward got restored to Pharaoh's palace, he was supposed to seek a pardon for Joseph, right? But he didn't do it. Forgot all about him. And Joseph stayed trapped behind bars. And that brings us to where this weekly Torah portion starts. It's Genesis chapter 41, beginning in verse 1, that we're going to look at together with Pharaoh's dream. It says, two full years later, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing on the bank of the Nile River. In his dream, he saw seven fat, healthy cows coming up out of the river and begin grazing in the marsh grass. Then he saw seven more cows come up behind them from the Nile, but these were scrawny and thin. And these cows stood beside the fat cows on the riverbank, and the scrawny, thin cows ate the seven healthy fat cows. And the story in that reading goes on to tell of a similar dream, but this time with stalks of wheat. And at that point in the story, Pharaoh woke up. So remember now, it's been two years since this wine steward is freed from prison and restored to his job that Pharaoh had these two unusual dreams, and he was was so disturbed over them, he was so upset that he called all of his wizards and all of his wise men to explain what it could mean, but none of them could do it. They couldn't even answer his question about why there had been two dreams instead of just one. And when I was working on the message earlier this week, I ran across an article about this by someone named Miss Meredith Kubler, who after eight years of intense research and studying the Egyptian scrolls, discovered what she said is the definitive answer to that question. She said the reason that it took two dreams to get Pharaoh's attention was because after the first one, he was still in denial. Sorry. I couldn't resist that one. I needed somebody to do one of those. (laughs) But... The kids are looking at me. The kids always say, Daddy, your jokes aren't even funny. They, don't, they, they totally don't get it. <laughs> but anyway, to get back to the story. The wine steward overheard all of his master dreams, and he remembered how Joseph had interpreted his dream two years ago and how that interpretation had come true. So he told Pharaoh this whole story, and immediately Joseph is summoned to appear before him. And when Joseph is told these two dreams, he explained that Egypt would experience seven years of prosperity, followed by seven years of famine. And Joseph also recommended that a wise and discerning person be appointed to administer the land and store up food for the coming years of trouble. And guess what happened to Joseph? He became that person. Overnight, he's taken from the dungeons and exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh himself. Seven years pass. All of Joseph's predictions come true, not just for Egypt, but for the surrounding regions too. They suffered from the famine. And Scripture says that all the world came to Joseph to buy food, including Jacob, Joseph's father, who sent all of his sons except Benjamin down to Egypt to buy food. Now, when Joseph sees them, he recognizes them, but not vice versa. And so to test them, he accuses them of being foreign spies. Now, of course, his brothers deny the charge and insist they're just there to buy food. So to test them a little further, Joseph orders them to bring back their brother Benjamin to prove their story is true. And then after a series of events, they arrive back in Egypt with Joseph hosting them at a feast and having his brother, his brothers, to their amazement, sit down to eat in the order of their birth. And now this is where the connections start to pull together. This is what I want you to see. In this lectionary reading coming from Joseph being a savior for his people, 
and matching up with the lecture reading about Jesus being the Savior of mankind because the life of Joseph is a type and a picture of the life of Jesus Christ. And I want to show you how that is. Firstly, Joseph was the beloved of his father's heart. Right? The Old Testament reading tells us that Joseph loved Jacob more than all of his other children, that he made him a glorious coat of many colors. And in writing on that passage, one commentator said, here we have more than a hint of the one who from all eternity was the delight of God the Father, the one whom he ever sought to magnify and glorify. For our Lord Jesus Christ was with the Father from all eternity in a relationship of love. Secondly, Joseph is a picture of the rejection of the Son. Now, even though every detail of Joseph's treatment by his brothers don't line up perfectly with the experiences of the Lord and all of his unbelieving brethren, it's a pretty plain story to see the similarities between the two because both were hated and rejected by those that should have loved them, right? Both were sold and left for dead. And both stories reveal the corruption of the human heart and the love of money and power rather than the love of God. The Old Testament, Joseph was steadfast in temptation. Now, in Joseph's case, of course, he was just a sinful man by nature, triumphing in this hour of of testing because of his fear for the Lord. But his experiences illustrate the testing and the triumph of our sinless Lord, who, as it says in Hebrews, was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. And in writing about this, D.L. Moody once said, Character is what a man is in the dark. Have you heard that before? Character is what a man is in the dark. And that Joseph's character had shown just as brightly in the dungeon as it did in the mansion. He said, they put him in fetters of iron, but the prison cell was only the antechamber to the royal palace. And in just the same way, our Lord Jesus faced all of the temptations of Satan. He faced all of the promises of wealth and passion and power that this fallen world held out, but he never gave in, just like Joseph. The Old Testament, Joseph also brought a message of liberty to captives. You know, Joseph was a a messenger of God to those folks that were in prison, wasn't he? Interpreting the dreams of the butler and the baker and bringing a message of judgment to some and a message of redemption to others. And even though to be able to do that, Joseph had to be humiliated for a time, There was never any break in his communion with God. He was able to interpret those dreams because he was under the power and the direction of God's Holy Spirit, just like Jesus was when he began his ministry. You know, when Jesus began preaching, he read this scripture from the Old Testament. He read to the crowd, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. You know, in response to that reading, the, the Bible says that everyone was amazed by the words that came from his lips as he revealed to them that he was the Messiah. Now, this is where another connection pulls together. Because this is a picture of Jesus' hearers whose hearts are amazed at his teachings. And it lines up exactly with Joseph, whose dreams were wonderfully fulfilled when his brothers came and sat at his feet in awe and amazement of what was happening to them. And then Joseph revealed to his brothers who he really was, just like Jesus revealed his ministry. The scriptures tell us Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer. 
And he said again, I'm Joseph, your brother, who sold you into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here and not you. It was God who sent me here and not you. Do you see the tender heart of Joseph here? His compassion as he finally reveals to his brothers and and symbolically to the people of Israel that he's their Messiah, their Savior, even though they had initially betrayed him and rejected him and made him suffer. But now you and I have one greater than Joseph coming to give eternal life and revealing himself to everyone who will receive him by faith, whether they're Jews or Gentiles which is exactly the point of our final lectionary reading for today from Hebrews. Hebrews 2, 2, chapter 10. That says, God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. Did you see how incredibly all these scriptures and the stories line up and connect together throughout scripture? With overwhelming detail right from the very beginning, just like that TV show I was telling you about. I mean, what are the chances that all of these texts could be so perfectly paralleled if it weren't for the hand of God and the spirit of divine inspiration working through the life of Joseph? And all of that with the goal of pointing to the Messiah. I mean, think about it for a minute. Now, I mean, admittedly, the story of Joseph has been preached on a lot. It's a, it's a great account of a human interest story. It's a really great chronicle of a man's trust in God. But is that all there is to draw from this huge portion that the story takes out of the book of Genesis? I mean, think about it. Why would it be given in such great detail and take over 13 chapters to dedicate to his story? 13 chapters. If it weren't for the greater purpose of prophetically foreshadowing the life of Jesus Christ in unbelievably specific details. Which connects me right back to where we started today when we read, in his love and pity he redeemed them and lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Because you see, brothers and sisters, Jesus, when he appeared, didn't come out of nowhere to create a new religion, but rather he fit like the final piece of the puzzle. That final piece of the puzzle needed to connect all of that Old Testament prophetic framework with the sovereign grace and redeeming love of God for all of those who would receive him. And today, Christ comes to fit those pieces together again as he calls all those that will hear him to his table, to his table here in love, in the only place that connects the righteous judgment of God with his relentless love for mankind, through his broken body and through his spilled blood. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father God, it is right always and everywhere to give you thanks and praise. We thank you, Father, for your mercy and for your love, especially, Lord, as we travel through this Christmas season. We thank you, Father, for sending your son Jesus, your word made flesh, to be our prince of peace and our savior, the Lord who brought us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. And so, gracious Father, remembering now your Mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from creation this bread and this wine and ask you to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and upon these your gifts, 
that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.